You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Uh, so we're going to welcome, glad you guys are here. Uh, you know, I'm going to be honest, I really like some of this. I felt, it just felt, it just felt weird not hanging out with you guys. It's been too long. So I'm glad we're here. I'm glad you braved the Missouri weather. Uh, I know you all woke up this morning not knowing whether to put on your parka or your gym shorts, and that's just the reality of where we're at, the state of things. So I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're going to be continuing in Mark today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 13, so you can open your Bibles there. Uh, we're actually going to move forward uh, with the text, um, even though we didn't get to meet last week, so that we can stay in sync with our, 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 our churches and our family. We'll, we'll, we'll circle back around and and hit last, last week's text this summer when we're done with Mark. I know you guys are all disappointed that you were really stoked to read about the abomination of desolation. I know you were just like, just waiting with bated breath to hear Jesus' take on uh, the AOD, as I like to call him. Uh, but luckily for me, we're moving on. So, <laughs> so we're in Mark chapter 13. Um, our text today actually begins in verse 28, but here's what I'm going to do since we've had a couple weeks of kind of moving back and forth. I'm actually going to read this whole uh, chapter. And so it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a little bit of a haul. So grab your Bibles and turn there. If you don't have a Bible today, uh, we have house Bibles at Edwin Beach Road. We, we just really believe in, in the power of God's Word and having access to that. So if you don't have a Bible with you today, grab one of those. Look at someone on the end of the row. They'll pass you one. If you don't own a physical copy of God's Word, please, please, please talk to me or one of our elders. We will get you one. We want you to have a nice copy of God's Word. So, uh, we're in Mark 13. I'm going to start in the first verse, and we're going to read uh, through the end of the chapter. Uh, and then the 28th of the end of the chapter is going to be our text for today. So, starting in the first verse, of the 13th chapter of the Gospel, according to Mark, we hear this. And as he, he being Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, in reference to the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left, one stone left on top of another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. 
And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father and his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, not enter his house, not take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it will not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I told you all these things beforehand. And in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, to the ends of heaven. And this begins our text today. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each one with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And this is the word of the Lord. What a fun text. Here's what we're going to do with this. I want to I wanna walk back through our text today. I want to point out just a couple little verses that are just a little bit controversial. And we'll, we'll put some context around this. We'll put some, some meat on the bones. And eventually this is going to lead us to, to one of Jesus' parables in Matthew. And we're actually going to end out our time today in the Psalms. Hopefully that sounds good. And that's what we're doing. So, remember, remember our context. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. He's, this is uh, his last time visiting Jerusalem. He has Past his judgment, as it were, on the temple and its systems and the temple worship. And he has left the temple for the last time 
in his earthly life, and he's standing on the Mount of Olives that overlooks the temple, and he prophesies the coming destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, which came to be exactly as Jesus predicted it in 70 AD. In fact, it came to be so exactly as Jesus said it that a lot of scholars went back and said they must have added that later because there's no way he could speak that clearly, uh, which, you know, is dumb. He's got to speak all at once. But that is a thing. So Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. He predicts the destruction of the temple. And what happens in this chapter, we've already talked about this, is that Jesus uses the imagery of his prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem as, as kind of a foreshadowing of his eventual return in triumph over sin in the end of days and in Revelation when Christ returns triumphantly and establishes his kingdom for eternity. And so this puts us in a weird place as the readers today because Jesus is speaking to people for whom both of these events are future events, right? So he's speaking about future events. He's moving back and forth between the two, using them to kind of describe each other. But for us, 2,000 years later, we're reading this with Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem as a past event, and Jesus' prophecy of his return in the end of days as still a future event. And so it makes it just a little harder to read this on its surface reading. You have to do a little digging to kind of parse out the language a little bit. So what's happened up to this point in the text, what we kind of missed last week, is that Jesus really begins to deep dive into how bad things are going to be. He, he really digs into what the persecution the church will experience, what it will actually look like, what it will actually feel like, and talks about God's sovereign mercy over the time of tribulation and trial for his church. Right? And, and this again is foreshadowed by uh, the Roman Empire destroying Jerusalem and how terrible it was for those people in that day. There's, there's kind of this back and forth there. And, and Jesus... I love this. Is he, he basically says, listen, when things get bad, everyone's going to start looking for an out. And there's going to be people all around you saying, here's Christ, he's back, this is Christ, this is the gospel, this is that. Listen, don't listen to any of that junk. When I come back, you'll know. I love that. I love that in verse, verse uh, 25. When I come back, there's not going to be any question. No one will need to convince you. So if someone's trying to convince you that they understand the gospel in this new way and they're connected to Christ and their Messiah, set it aside. Because there will be no question in the end of days who is the king and who is reigning over this creation. We can hold on to that today. So Jesus then moves on and he gives these two kind of mini parables. It's our text today. He gives this parable about a fig tree and this parable about a guy going on vacation. Right? So that's our text. The, the first one is really simple. He basically says, hey, you've all seen fig trees before. You know how their leaves pop up and then you know summer's coming? That's kind of this whole prophecy thing. When you see these signs begin to take place, you'll know the end is soon, that, that, that summer is coming, right? Now, the image of the fig tree is important. I think we have a picture of a fig tree. Is that true, Drew? Uh, yep. <laughs> the image of the fig tree is important. Because where Jesus lives in Palestine, basically everything is evergreen. The, the way the environment, just the, 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 the habitat there, there's not a lot of trees that lose their leaves. 
But the fig tree does. The fig tree loses its leaves and uh, gets them back before the summer. And what's interesting about the fig tree compared to just a couple other trees that actually lose their leaves in Palestine is that it gets its leaves back right before summer. Uh, the other leaving trees get their leaves back in the middle of winter. But the fig tree is a really good sign of the end of winter and the coming of summer. And so Jesus points to it and says, you guys all know the fig tree. We use the fig tree to measure the passage of time. So when, when the leaves pop up, you know the buds are coming, you know the fruit is coming, you know summer is almost here. In the same way, when stuff starts to happen like I'm talking about, you know we're getting there. You know we're getting close. And then he, he moves on, and he essentially says, now, don't, don't freak out about the specific date, because you're not going to know. And there's these two verses here that they get really controversial. Uh, verse, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these, but what I want to give you is I don't want you to be tripped up by this and miss the actual, the actual meat we're getting at in our text today. So in verse 30, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And this verse has been troublesome for the church for a long time. Because the first we read kind of go, Wait, is Jesus saying he's going to come back before his apostles die? That, uh, is that what he's saying? Because that kind of poses a problem for us reading it 2,000 years later, right? I think all those dudes died. Well, essentially, and again, any of this stuff, because this is a weird chapter, if there's any of this stuff you want to dig deeper on or you want to pick apart kind of my hermeneutic, but I geek out on this stuff, and so I would love to be talking with you and do like a deep dive on contextual analysis, but we're not, we're not going to do that right here. What you need to know, for our sake in this setting, is that what Jesus is referring to here, remember, he's moving back and forth between two prophecies. The prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem as a foreshadowing of his prophecy about the end of days. So what he's saying here is, the signs that I'm describing that will teach you what the end times are like are coming very soon. Most of you will experience them. So that terrible stuff I was just talking about that's going to give you a taste of what the end of days will be like, most of you will live to experience that, which is true. It's true. In fact, when Mark was written in the middle 60s to the persecuted church in Rome, it was actually during the events that led to the destruction of Jerusalem. And so the first audience reading this, experiencing the brutal Nero's persecution over the church, read this and went, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They were experiencing these trials and these foreshadowing. So Jesus is saying, listen, I know I'm speaking in prophecy, but don't act like this is some far-off, distant thing. Most of you are going to experience this stuff. And then he transitions and says, don't get all hyped up about the exact day I'm coming back, because you're not going to figure it out. And this is a really kind thing of Jesus to say, because as we talked about, this whole chapter even though Jesus is speaking prophetically, he's really speaking pastorally, right? He has deep concern for his people. And so he's speaking here in a way that's trying to preemptively care for them. And he's saying, listen, when it gets bad, don't start just like counting down the days going, I have to hunger away until Christ comes back. Because you don't know. <clears throat> Which, by the way, is the other controversial verse in this passage where Jesus says, Oh, only, only God the Father knows. 
And it's probably not super controversial for us today, but I do want to note this because this was a proof text used by uh, Arius in the 3rd and 4th century, the Arian heresy. This is a proof text they used to basically say that Jesus wasn't actually divine, uh, that he was a, a creation of God, and that heresy still exists today in the form of a Jehovah's Witness theology, by the way. And so we're not going to dig into that, but, but what you need to know, again, that's another thing where it's like, if you, if you want to dig deep, like, let's, let's get out and chat about it. But, but for our purposes today, all you need to know is that Jesus is not denying the doctrine of the Trinity by saying God knows something he doesn't know. He's actually, he's actually digging deeper and describing the doctrine of the incarnation. That as God the Son in the flesh, he is experiencing humanity, and part of humanity is limited knowledge. Right? So, Jesus says, don't get caught up on, on the details of this, because you're not going to know. And then he gives the second mini parable of a guy who goes on vacation, and he tells his servants to take care of the house while he's gone. Right? And this image he gives where he says, they know the master's coming back, but they don't know when. So they got to stay alert. they got to stay awake. they got to keep working, because it would be bad for them if he showed up and they were all asleep being lazy. And, and that's basically where Jesus ends out this time of prophecy. He, he keeps coming back to this phrase, be on guard, stay awake. Because you don't know. You don't know how this is going to go down. You don't know how long it's going to take. You don't know how bad it's going to get. But listen, it's going to get bad and it's going to take a while. So be on guard and stay awake. And then he moves on. I think this begs the question for us, what does Jesus mean by this? What does it mean to stay awake? To, to be the doorkeeper on watch, not knowing if the master will return in the evening or at night or at, at dawn or during the morning. We don't know. And, and so we have to just stay awake. Like The image there seems kind of brutal, right? It seems kind of like Jesus is setting himself up as this angry boss with an unrealistic expectation that if he catches you, right, that you're going to get it. Some of us have that boss right now, and we're like, I resonate with that. Blaine? <laughs> Some of us understand that. But if you, if you take this passage that way, you're actually missing Basically, the totality of how Jesus describes this relationship to the church. When Jesus says, stay awake, when Jesus says, be on guard, this is not an angry boss saying, stay awake or else. Because Jesus isn't my angry boss. Jesus is a bridegroom who is madly in love with his bride. and He is anticipating his return to her. Turn over with me to Matthew 25. I'm going to read this text for us. Starting in the first verse, the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Read this. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish ones took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps, as the bridegroom was delayed. 
They all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went into him with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, to understand this text, you have to understand a little bit of how marriage has worked in Jesus' day. And so I'm going to describe this to us. I'm going to kind of bullet point my way through this really quick. But it's going to give us, I think, just a fuller understanding of what Jesus is saying when, when your pastor, Jesus, warns you to be on guard and stay away. You see, the way weddings work in this day is a little more business-like than the way we understand it. Sometimes there was like marriage for love, but most of the time it was arranged marriages. Parents would talk about it, work it out. There would actually be this like formal bargaining session where the dads would get together and go back and forth about what a fair bride price was. You can imagine like this romantic scene where the dad's like, my daughter's worth three chickens, two chickens, and none more, like back and forth. And they would set that up, and they would sign a contract, and it would be a betrothal contract. And, and, and the, the fiancé, the, the guy would get to go tell the girl, hey, we're engaged now, it's super cool. And he would sit, go to her and, and show her the whole thing and say something to the effect of, hey, my beloved, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it weren't, my, my father's house has many rooms. If it weren't like that, I would have told you so. So wait for me and I'll come back for you. Because what would happen is, when the betrothal was set, when the contract was made, when they were engaged, the, the husband would then go and start to build their house. And most of the people in this day lived communally, so with your extended family, think about that, wives living in like a room adjacent to your in-laws. How wonderful life must have been. You would go back to your father, the husband, the, the husband would, be, would go back to his father's house and build and add on, maybe connected to the house or maybe in the yard, and he would spend time, him and his closest friends, building up the home that they would live in. And during that time, this is how the betrothal worked out. They had to be totally separate from each other. They could no longer hang out. They could no longer chat. They could no longer whisper sweet nothings in each other's ear. They were totally separate during the time of betrothal. And what's crazy about this is there's no real set date at that point. <laughs> it's like you're engaged. When are you getting married? I don't know. Whenever he gets the roof on, I guess. <laughs> and you didn't really get to check on it. And so while the husband-to-be and his bros are out <clears throat> building the house, the wife-to-be and her friends are getting things in order. They're making arrangements. They're getting wedding things set up, making sure food is procured, making sure everyone knows what's going on, getting affairs in order, setting up things, all these different things. There's this busyness and this working during the betrothal that's totally separate. And what's, what's cool about it is that it took so long to get the thing built. I mean, you're talking like, like 10, 12, 14 months, right? And by the time the husband finishes, he's not like, cool, the house is finished. Uh, let's set the date for March 4th. That's not how it went down. When it was done, it was like, woo, we're done. I'm going to get my wife right now. 
And so the husband and his bros would make their way toward the wife. They would start this wedding procession. And, and the, bride, the, the bridesmaids would, would create this pathway between the two homes. And as the, the wedding party marched down this path toward the bride, basically everyone would just stop living for a couple days. People would shut down their businesses and schools, and they'd all be like, let's go join this awesome party and celebrate this wedding. And people would just join the wedding party. And this group, this group of people, pretty inebriated at this point, by the way, <laughs> would just get larger and larger and larger as they make their way toward the bride's house. And when the husband finally gets there, he takes his bride, and they begin to participate in a multi-day feast where they celebrate, they commemorate their new home, they go and they start their life together. And it's this huge celebration, one of the biggest regular celebrations that the, the, the Jews of the first century of Palestine got to celebrate. It was a big thing that involved the whole community. And so when Jesus tells this parable about these bridesmaids, it's in this context, right? There's a betrothal. And some dude is out with his bros building a house, right? And she's back at her parents' house, just waiting, anticipating his coming. And, and maybe she gets word, right? And he started on the roof Thursday. I'm thinking Friday night. I think you'd be ready. <laughs> right? So she tells her bridesmaids, get out, get out there, set up the roof. And she's like getting everything ready. But you guys know, like, he started the roof on Thursday, but this was like a five Home Depot trip, not a two Home Depot trip. About. So it took like an extra couple days. And things, he gets delayed, and all the bridesmaids get tired, and they all fall asleep. And then it's finally like, done, let's do this! And they're sprinting down there, and they all wake up, and, and there's these wise, these foolish bridesmaids, right? Some of them had prepared for the wait. Some of them had said, hey, you know, I know this guy. This roof is not going to take two days. And they brought extra oil, and some of them didn't. They were ready for the party right then, and they brought what they had. And we see how Jesus plays this out. They're not ready. And they miss it. They're scrambling at the last minute to prepare themselves and get ready and get ready for the feast. And they miss it and they get locked out. And the image here, by the way, the image here is not about a vindictive groom who says, get away from me. No, 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 no. The image here is about a groom who is so madly in love with his bride-to-be, that he's not going to wait. He's not going to wait around. He is on a mission to go marry his love. And these people weren't ready. Right? So when Jesus says, be on guard, stay awake, He's not saying, I will catch you. I'm watching. It's not this mean, vindictive thing. Jesus is not an angry boss. Now, at the same time, like, you really don't probably want to be embarrassed or ashamed of what Christ finds when he returns. Christ is bright, right? We actually don't want him to return and find our life unprepared. But that's not the point. The point isn't that he's ready to snag you and get you in trouble. The point is that he is so in love with his bride, he can't wait to get back and to have you. He can't wait. 
And beloved, the image we're to see in this is that you are the beloved. Amen. You are the beloved of Christ. He's gone to make a place for you. He's preparing a home for you. He's eagerly anticipating his return. And so in Mark 13, we see Jesus not, not sitting here just doom and gloom prophecies saying how terrible things were. We, we see Jesus going, I love you and things are going to be bad while you're waiting for me to come back. But wait. Stay on guard. Don't miss it. I am coming back. I will have you. And, and there will be no question. When that, when that wedding procession shows up in power, there will be no question. And you know it's coming. I told you. I told you. Things will get back. And you'll want an out. And you'll want an escape. And you'll say this isn't worth it. Don't. Stay on guard. Stay awake. Wait for me. This is, this is Jesus speaking to his beloved out of passion, out of, out of anticipation of the, the theological term of Christ's return is the consummation. Jesus is anticipating being united to you Returning in love and perfect fellowship in the home that he has made for you, his beloved. This is the message of Mark 13. Be on guard, stay awake, endure the suffering, endure the trials, because I'm coming back for you. Because I, I love you passionately. I love you deeply. Nothing is going to keep me away from you. The, the wedding imagery of Jesus' relationship to his church kind of strewn through the different Gospels is, is so powerful, it's so striking. As you, as you begin to understand that kind of piece of this world, you see it popping up in the way Jesus speaks to his disciples from day one all the way up until his, his crucifixion and even his resurrection. He says things like, I'm going somewhere and you don't know the way you can't essentially, you are betrothed to Christ. You can't be with him. But he will return. He will take you. He'll take you home. And you'll be with him in perfection forever. Hallelujah. The place that he made for you. The life that he made for you. So when Jesus says, stay awake, what he's saying is, I want you to hear this. Keep loving Stay in love with me. Don't forget. Don't forget how much I love you. Anticipate my return. Think of the image of the bride-to-be skirting through her house, right, getting every little detail ready, sending her friends to go spy out the house and see how much is built and maybe, maybe tell his friends to like work a little faster. Right? <laughs> Think of the image of this eager anticipation that just says, I can't wait. It's any day now. Get out there. Light the lamp. Set this up. It's, it's coming. It's coming soon. This is the anticipation of 
someone waiting for their beloved. Are waiting for your beloved? Is that is that actually a, an accurate representation of your relationship to Christ? Are you eagerly anticipating his return to come and claim you as bride, as love, as passion? Are you awaiting with expectancy? You see, I think. I think what's, what's hard for us in passages like Mark 13 is that we don't experience the same trial and tribulation that most of the church experiences. And I'm not trying to poo-poo on the American church because we have religious freedom. That's awesome. But the reality is we don't experience the same trial, the same persecution, the same suffering that the rest of the church experiences. It is, on some ways, easier in the midst of loss to anticipate the promise of your bride. But we live in a world that if we're honest, for all its failures, it's pretty awesome to us. Right? We pretty much universally woke up the homes this morning with beds and heaters. Right? We, we live this life that has its own affections, that has its own joys. And many of us are lured out of our anticipation. And we're lured into complacency. And we're lured into easy satisfaction. We find our joy and our completion in the comfort of our wealthy lives and our earthly friendships and relationships. Beloved, be on guard. Stay awake. Don't be lured to sleep by foolish things of this world. They do nothing for you. The comforts of this world will fade away to nothing. Don't be tricked by them. Don't be lured by them. You can work your tail off and advance in your career and make tons of money and buy an awesome house and a cool car and marry the person of your dreams and have a legacy and become famous and write books and have a million followers on social media and have kids that are perfect and get good grades and get more right scholarships. You can do all those things. In 150 years, no one will care. Because all those things are garbage. Pretty garbage. Fun garbage. Comforting garbage. But they will not last. They will not return for you. They are not eagerly anticipating eternity with you. They are what they are. Vapor that is food. But your beloved, he is gone to prepare a place for you. He's crazy about you. He has pursued you and paid the bride price for you of his own life and his own blood. 
He's eagerly anticipating eternity. This is the promise of the gospel. You have, you have a God who loves you with that kind of passion. We started our time this morning by reflecting on some of the injustice and brokenness in this world. I want to encourage you as we kind of end out our time. When we see the terrible things of this world, please give us a lens to see how foolish our garbage jewelry is. Right? When we reflect on the reality of things like systematic racism, war, abortion, sexual and physical abuse. It gives us a lens and we can look down and we can see all the things we bedazzle ourselves with for what they are. Garbage that will rot. There's only one thing, one thing, fix what is broken in this universe. And he is passionately in love with you, but he's coming back for you. Are you anticipating him? I'm going to close our time by reading a song, and then I'm just going to pray and invite you guys to come celebrate how good our bridegroom is by partaking in communion and spending time in prayer together. This is Psalm 45, and it is a love song a bride anticipating her wedding feast. It says this, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme, so I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, almighty one in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. People fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold and over. Hear, O daughter, consider, incline your ear, forget your people. Forget your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the, the riches of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many color robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place, your father shall be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all the generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever, beloved. 
we are waiting for a wedding feast. Waiting to be presented to our King. Anticipate Him. Expect His return. Channel your inner bride-to-be. Wait with expectancy. God, you are so good to us. You're so good to us. You're so good to us. Teach us to love you like you love us. Teach us to anticipate you, to expect you, to long for you as you long for us. Lord, come soon. Fix what is broken and dead in this world. Love you. Trust you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.